Amen. So glad you're here this morning. I'm going to slow down a little bit. Last service, I got up here. I was real excited when everybody sat down, and I think it was a little too much. Uh, so I want to just welcome you here this morning. So glad you're here. Take your time a little bit. Get settled. Let's talk about uh, big stuff, though. Let's talk about hard stuff. Uh, Today is a little bit of a heater, so I hope you're ready for uh, just what the Lord might want to say to you from His Word. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can open them up to the book of the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 2 today. We're doing a little series on the Psalms, and I call it a little series because it will be little. Uh, Rachel, my wife, was telling me when I told her I was going to do Psalm 2 this week, she's like, Wait, really? Like, you're going to do all of them? Like, no, no, no. that would be seven years. But we are going to do Psalm 2 today because I do think there's some order in the way the Holy Spirit uh, arranged these psalms. And there's something to the first one followed by the second one that has been very powerful in my life. I want to try and bring to you this morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. And we really are thrilled that you're spending some time this summer with us because... uh, We have designs on you. Uh, You don't just get to come here and sit. Uh, You can. You can get away with it. There's nothing we can do. We can't force you to do anything. But my goal is never going to be to just keep you comfy here. The goal that God has laid on His church is far too grand uh, for the Sunday morning experience and a constant refinement of the Sunday morning experience to be our only goal. Now we want to make this as great as we can, as clear as we can, as impactful as we can. But for what? The cycle is not just you come, you like, you give, we continue. Really? Would that, would that really be worth doing? No, not, not at all. And for us, as we start to look at what God has called us to do, which is to take the message of His salvation that He's provided for every person and to take it to every person, no matter how difficult the obstacles between us and a clear presentation of that message may be. And there are obstacles. There's people that live all over the world. Difficult to get to geographically. There's people that speak any kind of language in the world. Difficult to get to linguistically. There's people that have already got very specific constructs in their head about who God is, who we are, and how we relate to Him. They're difficult to get to theologically, apologetically. But no matter what the hurdles are, we've been called to overcome them. That involves us helping you do that work. And we're going to talk, after this psalm series, we're going to jump into the book of Acts. We're going to talk about what we're supposed to be doing. How we're going to go about doing it. But to do that, I want to get our hearts right. And last week when we talked about Psalm 1, my concern is that many of you are here on a spiritual diet this morning. It happens. Most people, when they come to church, if they're not thinking about it, are really here to just sort of shape up a little bit. Uh, Most of us were also on a physical diet, so it's helpful maybe as an illustration. If you've crested the age of like 25, then your metabolism has tanked and your friends has too. And so you are constantly either on a diet 
or you should be. And most of us sort of waffle between those positions of, I was on a diet, it wasn't working. I'm on a diet, it's not working. Uh, well, you know, we're kind of in one of those two spots because we have mirrors and we realize like, okay, need to do a little work here, a little work there, maybe a little overhang in one area or another. I don't want to address. And so you jump into some little program that you think is going to hopefully take off that 10 15, 20, 25, more than that, that you want to get rid of. Same thing happens with church. You'll notice there's something a little awry in your world. A little existential angst, a little too much anger, a little too much whatever. Something. And so you come to church. You want to knock off that spiritual little 10 pounds here or there. You want to learn something that will help you shape up. But that's not how the Bible describes a relationship with the Lord. And we talked about last week how we are called to delight in the law of the Lord. And by law, the scripture means much more than just the Ten Commandments. It means the ways, the words of God. Who he is. There's a delight in him. If you are motivated by a delight in the Lord, then you're going to be running to him and running for him, no matter the obstacle. If it's delight, I can't slow you down. If it's diet, I can't push you hard enough. If it's diet, your tank is going to run on willpower, self-determination, shame. Most of us don't diet because we have iron wills. We need diets because we don't. Most of us diet because we're ashamed of ourselves and our bodies. Probably not always a bad thing. Tighten that up. Clean that up a little bit. But that shame can't work for our spiritual motivation. Shame and guilt is not going to drive you to do the things that God has called you to do. Only delight will. I can't stop you from going to the things that you delight in. Do you delight in the Lord? I talked about um, this past week. There's an illustration uh, that's really clear, I think, in Genesis 29. Jacob is one of those patriarch guys, one of the guys that God used to establish the people of Israel. Jacob's name later changed to Israel, who had the 12 sons, became the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament when he's first encountering this girl that he marries for his first wife. Yes, believe me, in the Old Testament, we can talk a lot about that if you want to. And he loved this girl, this beautiful girl named Rachel. I understand that. My wife's name is Rachel. She's gorgeous. And Jacob said to Rachel's dad, Laban, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better to give her to you than to somebody else. So come and work with me. Jacob says, uh, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Is that your experience when it comes to serving the Lord? Does it feel like just a couple of days because of your love for Him? It can. If there's an apathetic, no, of course not. Okay. It can. But part of how we want to get there is remove some obstacles from you. And and honestly, this Psalm number two here is a difficult psalm 
Because where it pokes us to say you need to work right here is, is hard to confess. But let's jump into it. Psalm 2 says this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I really started working through this psalm a long time before I was planning to preach it because I needed it personally. And I came to this psalm because of the language of it. It's so intense toward the enemies of God. And the reason that I came to this psalm is that I wanted something to tell me that God was going to beat up my enemies. Out of the world as I'm trying to make different things happen. As I understand them for God's glory, maybe just for mine, there's all kinds of sin in my life. But I'm saying... When I go out and try and make something happen, and then I just get beat up. Maybe I don't even try and just imagine what it would be like to try and imagine getting beat up. And I wanted some part of scripture that talks about God going out there and just beating up the people who are trying to beat me up. And yet, it did not take long as I was reading this psalm to realize that the, the villain in this psalm is not somewhere out in the world. The villain in this psalm is unfortunately much closer to home. I don't need this psalm so that God will change the world. I need this psalm so that God will change me. And of course that's the case. I quoted this quote uh, last week in the first service. I didn't get to it in the second, but... Very intelligent Christian, name of Francis Schaeffer, said this. The central problem. And he, 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 the full quote, he lists all these different things that we think of as the thing that's stopping Christianity from growing and becoming more impactful and persuasive. And he said, no, 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 no. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God. Not in the circumstances surrounding them. What do you think about that? You ever dreamed big for the kingdom and then immediately thought, well, that would never work? Why? And you start to list why. You start to give all the reasons that the world would never let that happen. Do you believe this quote here from Francis Schaeffer? Because if our God is as big as he is, if he's able to do anything, then the circumstances can, by definition, never stand in the way of his purposes. So, where's the problem? Uh-oh. <laughs> it's not out there. The primary problem is right here. 
That's what I want us to work on together. This psalm was called a coronation psalm, meaning that it was written for and recited during the coronation of a new king in Israel or Judah. And they would sing this song as the king was crowned, and it was a way of saying that this king is God's man. And this king is not going to be threatened by the kingdoms that surround. And there's all kinds of interesting stuff we can learn about the history of the way this psalm was used. But it's very clear, I think even to the original singers, that they were looking at a greater king. And they were thinking about a bigger scheme than just this king and this kingdom and this time period. As we look at it, especially through the lens of the New Testament, we can understand that they were talking about something even greater than this king that's mentioned in Psalm 2. They're talking about God's big plan in sending his son to be king over us. And yet, what I want us to do as we, we kind of think about it, again, is not try and focus in on ancient Middle Eastern politics, but instead to think about how this psalm might affect or relate to or be important for us. Look at these first couple of verses, and, and I want us to think together about whether or not it's talking about us. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against. They set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. They take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Brothers and sisters, this is why I think this is talking about us and not some evil people out in the world that are trying to kill us. I think it's talking about us because you and I regularly fashion ourselves as kings. Now, we can do that in a lot of different ways. I think some people who will just disregard the idea of God, or maybe they're a little contemptuous against the idea of God, they set themselves up as kings and they are pretty brazen about it. We live in a world and in a culture that puts individualism on the highest peg possible. You doing you is the highest good for most people in our culture. And it assumes that there is no God. So there may be a blatant, I am king over me. But it goes deeper than that. Because there are people that are here this morning that would say, well, no, of course not. There is a God and I believe I'm not him. And I believe that he's king over me, is right to tell me what I can and can't do with my life. But I wish it wasn't that way. Maybe you would never say that. You've been to too many church services to know you're not supposed to say that. But you feel that. There's a part of you that wishes that if only he would let me do this my way, then we could get something done. If only he would do this on my timeline, then, mm, then we'd have something. If only he would let me pursue pleasure my way, then I'd be happy. Your measurement on whether or not you fit in this category is how well you delight in the law of the Lord. Do you do it begrudgingly? Because you know he's got you. He holds all the cards. He has all the guns. You have to submit. Or does he have your heart? 
That's one category. And then there's a third category, and this is the scariest one. These are people who will serve God and serve God zealously. They go after it hard. But they're not doing it for his glory. They're doing it for their own. And they do want to serve him. And they do want people to be impressed by their service of him. So that at some point they can break the bonds apart and stand before him as an equal rather than fall before him as a servant. Where is your heart? If the settled position of your heart is not one of those three categories, praise God. But I would imagine at some points you do fall into those categories. There are times when you just want to do things your way and you don't really care a hill of beans what God says you should or should not do. Maybe there's some times where you know you can't, but you wish you could. You set yourself up in your own heart as a king against God. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Scornful laughter. Now, I was trying to think of an illustration for this, and it's very difficult to do. Because there's not a good thing that's like stupid that could rebel against us that somebody hasn't made into a scary movie. Here's what I mean. What I'm trying to illustrate is our rebellion to God versus like something rebelling against us. The first thing I thought of was like critters. What if like birds and squirrels declared that they were in rebellion against us? It'd be like, ha, ha, ha. But then I immediately remembered that scene from the birds where they walk by and that guy's eyes have been pecked out. Oh, it doesn't even look convincing. It looks fake. But it still scares me. Decades later, I remember it. So I okay, we can't use that. And then I was trying to think about, well, what about like things we've made? God made us, we make things. What if the things we made rebelled against us? And again, I quickly dismiss that because I'm terrified of like a robot rebellion. That's going to happen. Amazon's going to lose control of their drones or something will happen. That's not a funny thing. That's a terrifying thing. So that one is out. Then I was thinking about like, well, what about like a ficus, like an office plant? What if the nation's ficuses were going to raise up in rebellion against us to take over and dethrone humanity? But then I remembered M. Night Shyamalan made that movie, The Happening, where like the ferns and the trees were trying to kill people. Do you remember that? Nobody saw it. No, I didn't either. But I thought, well, maybe that one won't work. And then that sort of hit me like part of our fiction revolves around the concept that what we have made will then turn and rebel against us. Why? Why is that fear in our hearts? Is it perhaps because we know that we were made and have rebelled? Do you know what it is to have the the heart of a tyrant? The heart of a tyrant fears more than anything the people he has subdued. Because he knows he's wronged them. And that at any point they could rebel against him. Do you understand that you and I have the heart of a tyrant? We have rebelled against God. This is the settled argument of scripture. You can disagree with me and that's totally fine. Please give me the opportunity to talk to you about it. But it is the settled argument position of scripture. That we have rebelled against God and continue to regularly. And the God who sees that rebellion 
laughs. Can you dethrone God? Of course not. Part of the reason people don't believe in the devil is, why would something rebel against God when it could see him? The devil could never win. Why is he fighting against God? Why are we rebelling against God when we can never win? God holds him in derision. And then he inserts, he he establishes a beachhead. He sends his king. He speaks to them in his fury, verse 5, and terrifies them, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Establish the beachhead. He's got his kingdom and he's got his king. And I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Do you understand, as you read through the whole of the Bible, that while there was some understanding when they wrote the psalm about the modern kind of kings of Israel at the time, really, they were writing about the king to come? The writers of the New Testament certainly saw it that way. David was a type of the one to come. We preached on Revelation 22. We talked about how Jesus is both the root and the fruit of David. David, this king, the greatest king in the people of Israel's history, came from Jesus and in some ways was the one who bore Jesus. Jesus being the creator and descendant of David. Both God and man. How? (laughs) But I do believe both God and man. But David, meaning that Jesus is the king in this Psalm 2. And he's absolutely the king. It talks about God's power in Psalm 65, 6, and 7. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas. Stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Do you remember the story in Mark 4? When Jesus is in a boat with the disciples and a storm comes and it's just dominating this little boat and all these guys who are sailors, much less like the tax collectors and the other ones, are freaking out and Jesus was asleep. And they wake Jesus up. Don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea. Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Uh, Rachel said last week that I was impersonating Jerry Seinfeld at times, and now I just heard it. Uh, sorry. Why are you afraid? Uh, he probably didn't say it like that. He was Jewish, but he probably didn't say it like that. <clears throat> Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus just calmed the sea. Their danger is gone. Or is it? Because the disciples went from scared to more scared. Because however crazy the storm is, one greater is in the boat. Don't step on his toe. Don't make him mad. He's greater than even the storm. And yet this God made man humbled himself. 
What was the king that Jesus, uh, that, that God sent to be among us, to be king among us? Yes, he will one day come back in judgment. Yes, he has all power to calm all storms and kill whomever he chooses. And yet, this is how he came. Philippians 2, 8-11, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you hear that? Given a scepter in all rule, facing rebellion on all sides, God died for the rebels. Iron scepter can beat us apart like an iron scepter would pottery. And yet he takes that punishment for us. What greater love has any man than that? It's great love to die for your friends, but to die for your enemies? Yes, there is a day when we will have judgment. But though we're rebels, this king has made a way for us to be forgiven, reconciled, brought back to God. So what do we do with this? Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Whether you have a crown or you've just made yourself king, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest you be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's church. It's Sunday. You're about to go get some lunch with your kids, take a nap. But do you understand what those verses just said to you? Last week we said you're a tree, you're chaff. You're planted by streams of living water because you delight in the law of the Lord. Or you're reduced eventually blown around by the wind until the day when judgment comes and you cannot stand. Do you understand that this text is saying the same thing? What this text is saying, though, is to come to the Son. Listen, you will have to stand before God at some point. Everybody dies. And you will either be judged For your wicked deeds. Or you'll be forgiven for them totally. Those are your two options. And the only way to be forgiven is to come to the Son to rejoice with trembling that you can be forgiven. That you can come to this King, though you've rebelled, and you can kiss Him. And be redeemed. Brothers and sisters, where are you at this morning? Maybe you've done that. You're saved. You've had the final moment where you've said, I kiss you, Lord. 
I lay all my life before you, Lord. You are the one who has saved me through Christ. I can do nothing to earn your salvation. I can only receive it by faith. Maybe you've done that. But lately, you've really cruised away from that love. The obedience, whatever there is of that obedience, in your life is remnant. It's not growing, fruit-producing life. And you need to go back to the source. Return to the one who loves you. Who proved it so thoroughly on the cross. Dying for you. And have that fire stoked again in you. So that we can use you to do something in the world. If though that's not you. And you've never come to a point of claiming that forgiveness from Jesus. I'm just going to ask you to think about it. The scripture is clear. There's just two ways. There is a God and you're not him. When you meet him, what are you going to say? Have you been living in service to him? The answer is no. Nobody has. So what can you do? Hey, all you can do is receive this kind of forgiveness from him. The good news of the gospel is that if you come to this king and repent, he doesn't just bring you in. He makes you part of his family. He loves you. He teaches you to love him, to delight in serving him. He cleans you up and he puts you back out into the world as his servant rather than his rebel. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Do you see the analogy of the Lord's Supper? The beauty of the picture. Of the one who died so that you could have this food, so that you could have this cleansing, so that you could be made new, to be plugged into that kind of love forever. Our plea with you is to take a moment right now and think about where you're at. Is that true about you? Is all of your faith and all of your hope? In Christ alone? If so, praise God. Ask yourself if you are serving the Lord with fear and rejoicing with trembling. If you wake up in the mornings to kiss the Son who has saved you. Or if maybe you've fallen back into old patterns. And if that's not you this morning, you've never done that before, consider. Consider. There's all kinds of things we can talk about that help you understand and want to believe. But just consider this morning that event of the death of Jesus, historically testified universally for you. What greater love. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would grab hearts. Father, we don't want to just try and browbeat people into obedience. We don't want to try and guilt or shame people into a different lifestyle for a moment. Lord, we want to catch them all the way down in the way that you have caught us. By changing our hearts, by making us new, by changing our loves. I pray this morning, Father, that you would convince us of your love and convince us, honestly, of our rebellion. Allow us to see it so we can change it, Lord. Allow us to bring the darkness into the light. 
so that as it disappears, we become useful. Useful not because we'll do more, but useful because we'll love more. Love you and feel your love towards us. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.